With General Grant now in command of Union forces in March 1864, what was his strategy to win the war? What happened at the Battle of Fort Pillow? And how did the Wilderness Campaign support Grant's strategy? For answers to these questions and more Civil War insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, part five of a seven-part series on the Civil War, I'm speaking with CMH historian Dr. Matt Marges. Welcome, Matt, and thanks for joining me again. Thanks for being here again, Lee. So a little bit of background on Dr. Marges. Uh, he works with the U.S. Army Center of Military History as the historian for the Office of the Chief of Staff of the Army. He has been with CMH since 2017. Prior to taking his current position, he worked as a researcher in the Histories Division at CMH. His area of expertise is late 19th century and early 20th century military professionalization. He graduated with a Ph.D. from Iowa State University in 2016. His dissertation, America's Progressive Army, How the National Guard Grew Out of Progressive Era Reforms, won the Karras Award for Outstanding Dissertation in 2017. And he's currently converting that dissertation into a manuscript for publication. Dr. Marges has written articles on African-American service during World War I and numerous book reviews. He recently published a chapter on consolidating gains during Operation Market Garden in an Army University Press volume on large-scale combat operations. And um, uh, Matt, what am I missing? Yeah, I think you hit a lot of it again. Uh, I'll just do another shameless plug for the uh, <laughs> annual Department of the Army historical summary uh, that we over an FPS put together every year that covers, uh, as I mentioned last time, it covers the headquarters Department of the Army activities for uh, one fiscal year. And so we just released FY20, hoping to get FY2021 out by the end of this year, and then we will start uh, working on 22. Great. And that those publications, the DASEMs, as we call them, what, Department of the Army Summary? Department of the Army Historical Summary. Historical Summary. And uh, those and all of our publications are available from our website for free downloads at history.army.mil. All right, Matt, so let, let, let's get into this. So um, let's start off with an overview of the strategic situation. We are now um, in um, March of 1864. Uh, General Grant is the Union commander. So describe uh, how the Union Army is, is arrayed and what Grant's strategy is. So, yeah, so General Grant, Lieutenant General, now Lieutenant General mm -hmm. Ulysses S. Grant, First lieutenant general in the, in the army, is it? Uh, first since George Washington. Since Washington, okay. Um, mm -hmm. Winfield Scott held that rank as a brevet, but was never mm -hmm. officially confirmed as it. So first since uh, George Washington, and he is in overall command of the entire uh, U.S. Army. Um, he is going to leave General Henry Halleck in Washington, D.C. to kind of oversee the administrative elements of managing the force, um, kind of similar to a chief of staff, but not a direct parallel. Mm -hmm. um, and what he has basically done is he is looking at the final strategy to win that he thinks will win the war. Um, and General Grant had this ability that a lot of his contemporaries didn't necessarily have that we would today consider strategic thinking or, um, but if you would have asked somebody in 1864 about strategy, they would really <laughs> define operations. They would be um, defining a campaign. They would mm -hmm. be defining a theater. Uh, most of most of them couldn't think or didn't think they weren't trained that way to see things from very umbrella kind mm -hmm. of strategic mindset. Um, General Grant did. Uh, I think it was just through he learned it as time went on. It's not something that he was innately born with. Mm -hmm. um, but he could sort of see a big picture in how to finally defeat the Confederacy. And his goal here was to basically run multiple operations mm. aimed at different objectives with the ultimate goal of convergence. Mm -hmm. So that meaning that he was going to accompany the Army of the Potomac as it moved south towards Richmond. 
then he would have his kind of next his his first subordinate major mm-hmm. general william sherman lead his uh, armies in the western theater towards atlanta eventually capturing atlanta and then with the goal of then moving up from atlanta to converge and meet his army somewhere around mm-hmm. Richmond, unless he could capture Richmond first. Uh, uh, and there were also subsequent operations that don't get as much kind of publicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, naval operations up and along along the coast, operations in the in the what we in sort of the Trans Mississippi theater, mm-hmm. so sort of uh, Louisiana, Texas, right. um, and then some other you know middle you know continued operations in Tennessee, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he s- sort of saw this as. A way of of having multiple large formations running simultaneous operations towards a common goal. Right. Yeah, and and that makes sense. I I, I think you know um, from the beginning of the war with Operation Anaconda, I think that's the last time we saw a major strategy and, to and, win the war. And what's really interesting is looking at, at yeah General Winfield Scott's uh, Anaconda plan, as it was so called. It's very similar to what Grant came up with, mm-hmm. um, but of course Scott. Uh, people at the time, especially General George McClellan, Major mm-hmm. General McClellan, saw him as as an old man, as an impediment to his own advancement, oh, right. and it was kind of poo pooed. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this isn't going to take that long. You're talking about a naval blockade, and you're talking mm-hmm. about all these different things. This, mm-hmm. we're, this the war will be over in a few months. Yeah. All we need to do is defeat this army and capture Richmond, and it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you, it was look, a very European style of of, of it combat. Was, it, was, it, it was. It was a very nineteenth century mm-hmm. mindset, and so in, in an interesting way, what Grant kind of devises is very similar to what General Scott had sort of envisioned four years earlier, um, but was somewhat dismissed. Right. All right. So good. So we understand what the strategy is moving forward. So how does he start implementing that? Yeah. So he's gonna, um, and we'll talk more in detail about these. But basically, in spring of eighteen sixty four, once. The campaign, you know, if the campaign season can begin, uh, winter freezes have have mm-hmm. thawed. Uh, weather is getting a little more conducive to large scale movements. He's going to launch his subs, his simultaneous operations. He's going to have General Sherman begin his march from Chattanooga towards Atlanta, and he's going to push from uh, the Army of the Potomac's fortifications uh, towards Richmond, um, which will eventually be become his overland campaign, and then. Uh, which will settle into the siege of Petersburg. All right. And then uh, while this was going on, there was an, um, a, a battle at uh, Fort Pillow. So describe what happened there because it's it's significant in, on, in, on for different reasons. But um, And uh, talk about that and how did it affect the morale in the Union Army, especially among black soldiers? So, yeah, Fort Pillow is one of those infamous – situations, uh, sometimes often referred to as, as the massacre at Fort Pillow. Mm-hmm. Uh, April 12th, 1864, so about a month before uh, Grant's going to launch his, his overland campaign, um, Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest is launching a series of raids in and around Tennessee. Uh, and these raids are not necessarily designed to defeat a major army. They're mm-hmm. ra- basically designed to disrupt uh, Union opera- U.S. Army operations. And Fort Pillow is one of these locations in Tennessee. It, it sh- changed hands multiple times throughout the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most recent one was in um, late 1863. The U.S. Army had recaptured Fort Pillow and had held it uh, since then. Uh, the garrison there uh, was a not very large um but about half of the soldiers there were of a U.S. Colored Troops regiment. Mm-hmm. So it was about about half of the defenders at Fort Pillow were uh, were black soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, Forrest's cavalry, um, his very large cavalry force, almost effectively an army in a sense, um, will attack Fort Pillow and, on April 12, 1864, and it, they successfully recapture the fort. Um, the the defenders weren't in the best position. They didn't really manage it well. They left some barracks it, as they kind of had to move some things around. They didn't destroy barracks, which mm-hmm. gave the con- the Confederates basically buildings to use as, as their own oh, defensive wow. um, mm. posture. But in any event, what's going to end up happening is there's some confusion or some debate as to what actually happened, whether or not the U.S. The US garrison officially surrenders or they don't. But whatever the case was, there is a, a slaughter. Um, 
especially among the, the black soldiers. And was this after they surrendered? That's, that's where the debate is, is whether or not they officially surrendered. Uh, but either way, had they not, um, most people agree, most historians agree that they had either officially surrendered or were in the act of surrendering, mm-hmm. laying down their arms, basically saying this is no longer tenable um, when, when they are, they are effectively bayoneted, uh, no quarter shown, um, killed very, very brutally. Uh, and specifically the black soldiers. Yes. And Forrest later on is going to claim that he gave no such order. Mm-hmm. But knowing his personality, whether or not he explicitly said to do that, it was probably a standing, just sort of standard, pra- uh, standing mm-hmm. practice in his in his army. Um, and, yeah, and, well, well, wasn't there a, a an announcement made at some point that any black soldiers found in would would be summarily executed. There was, and the Confederate government had effectively said that, mm-hmm. uh, and that they would they would show. Well, actually, it was mostly that Confederate or that black soldiers could be returned to a state of servitude, mm-hmm. uh, slavery, oh. uh, and it was their white officers. Oh, any any white mm-hmm. officer who was found would be um, could be executed. Okay. Um, and Fort Pillow is going to be a, a rallying cry. There's going to be a, a remember Fort Pillow among mm-hmm. the Union, the Union Army, uh, the U.S. Army, and it's there's going to be some repercussions of this policy going forward. Not only of Fort Pillow specifically, but the overall Confederate mentality of not treating black prisoners mm-hmm. as prisoners of war, right. um, and that's going to lead to. General Grant, now in command of, of all U.S. Army forces, saying the exchange program that we have been operating under for this entire war is suspended until the Confederate government starts treating black soldiers like... So what is that exchange program? So effectively, it was a way of uh, you would parole officers. And this goes back. This is an old practice that had gone back centuries in, oh. in Western armies mm-hmm. where you could parole officers and you would hold captured prisoners as prisoners until you would exchange them, usually for enlisted soldiers on almost a one-to-one basis mm-hmm. for uh, other your own prisoners. The mm-hmm. idea being it, it, they were supposed to then swear an oath that they wouldn't return to duty. A lot yeah. did, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, would, it was a way of not having to care for large swaths right. of men mm-hmm. um, because these, these, the, the infrastructure usually wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the, the downside of this policy that is going to be implemented is the reason places like Andersonville Prison, Libby Prison, mm-hmm. uh, and then even, even Douglas Prison in Chicago uh, for Confederate prisoners, um, the reason a lot of those sprung up was from this policy. Because mm-hmm. prior to 1860, late 1863, oh, okay. 1864, there was no need for large mm-hmm. standing prison structures for huge groups of POWs because they were often exchanged mm-hmm. uh, or exchanged relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. going to change after this. And so Fort Pillow was not necessarily the cause of that, but it was part of, a, a, I guess you could say, a symptom of the, the different policies right. that were in place, okay. especially the, the Confederate policy of treating right. these people as slaves effectively. All right. So um, now... Back to uh, to Grant and and his strategy. Uh, his what was his goal of you, you mentioned the Overland campaign. Is that the same as the Wilderness campaign? Yeah, Wilderness. The Battle of the Wilderness is the first kind of battle in the Overland campaign. Mm-hmm. So, what were the key battle? What well, just first describe the uh, the strategy um, of of that campaign and uh, what were the key battles in it. So, Grant's basically his goal with the campaign is to move towards Richmond. Uh, and he is going to try to do it in the, the quickest and most direct way, uh, which takes, which basically goes through the old Chancellorsville battlefield, the old mm-hmm. Fredericksburg battlefield, uh, and then works its way south. Um, his, and there's a lot of enthusiasm in the Army of the Potomac. Mm-hmm. Again, he's he's overseeing the the entire force, but he, he's with the Army of the Potomac, so he's accompanying the Army of the Potomac mm-hmm. as well as um, Ambrose Burnside's Ninth uh, Corps. Um, this is going to lead to some command confusion because Burnside and Meade are technically the same rank. Burnside technically outranks Meade. Um, mm. He's in command of a corps. Meade's in command of an army. Grant is there. Grant and and an army is higher than a corps. Right. And, yeah. and Grant can, of course, give 
orders to both, but Burnside doesn't want to take orders from Meade. So there's some con- there's command confusion a bit, but the, oh, the basic but the basic approach is yeah they're going to move on on Richmond. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, as I mentioned earlier, William Sherman's army is moving towards Atlanta, mm-hmm. and the battles that ensue are due to as we another kind of old adage of you know a battle plan only survives till the first shot right right uh, so a lot of what's going to ensue in the overland campaign is in a res- in response to the confederate reactions mm-hmm. to grant's actions uh, but in in may of 1864 there's a lot of enthusiasm among the soldiers in the east they think we finally you know this guy who doesn't look like we're used to he's wearing a slouch hat and a dirty uniform mm-hmm. and he's only about five foot seven uh, 135 140 pounds this very slight mm-hmm. guy with a you know kind of a raggedy beard but but he's he's a he's won battles so mm-hmm. there's this thought that this is finally what we're going to need to defeat uh, Robert E Lee's seemingly impregnable or invincible army the mm-hmm. of Northern Virginia um, and there's going to be a wake-up call there during the Overland Campaign. Uh, Grant's strategy is ultimately successful, but the Overland Campaign itself becomes a slog. Yeah. Um, so the first battle is is known as the Battle of the Wilderness, which, again, it, it's in the same place, uh, same battlefield as, as Chancellorsville. So these are, in some cases, there are soldiers in, in like Governor Warren's Corps, for example, who are in the same position that they were in two years earlier. Oh, wow. Uh, there are, in cases, you know, shallow graves that are being churned up after seasonal oh. rains, and they're seeing soldiers that they had actually served with two years ago from their same yeah. units in some cases, mm-hmm. same divisions, uh, that had been buried in shallow graves before. So it's it's a very ominous feeling. And if, ever, if you've ever visited that battlefield, even just seeing it today, mm-hmm. you get a sense of this is a very difficult place to operate. Right. Uh, there are some open areas. The, the Chancellorsville Tavern area was open. Um, mm. But a lot of it is wooded. A lot of it is dense thickets. Um, but what was it? And it was that way in the day as well. It was, yes. Some of the battlefields that I've been to, um, it's, there's a lot of uh, trees. But, you know, we learned that, oh, those those weren't here during the during the battle. So, okay. Yeah, it's it was it was very dense. It was mm-hmm. very it was it was difficult to move, mm-hmm. um, especially in these woods. And the the battles are going to start on May 5th, 1864. Um, and basically for three days, it's the same story mm. over and over. It's they're ordered to attack. They start to move. They get separated from the, the soldier, the, the regiments on their right or left because mm-hmm. they can't see them. They come up on Confederate defenders or Confederate, Confederate attackers mm-hmm. that they didn't know were there yeah. because it's so dense. And then a bloody... 4A, and then chaos, and it's basically three days of that. Um, hmm. Grant is almost, his, Grant's army, the Army of the Potomac is all set almost to uh, to break out, but in a, again, another kind of Confederate trick of fate, trick of luck, uh, James Longstreet's soldiers who were in reserve are on their way up, and they kind of arrive just oh. in time. Um and this is just sort of what what happens. It's it's effectively a draw. It's mm-hmm. it's three days. It's very bloody, but it's a draw. And a lot of the soldiers, even after that three days, were were very worn out. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is, and for a while this is going to be a morale boost, is that after the Battle of Wilderness, General Grant doesn't order the Army of the Potomac to retreat back across the river mm-hmm. and regroup. He orders it to continue on. Um, so at that point, if you would have looked at the Army of the Potomac and these Eastern armies on May 8th, mm-hmm. they're excited. This is this is great. We're actually, you know, yeah, we fought to a draw, but we, you know, we killed a lot of them too, mm-hmm. and now we're still moving. We're right. still going. And is that for Grant? Is that a lesson learned from Chattanooga and what happened in Gettysburg or, th- or other th- battles? Or? I think that was just Grant's way. I okay. think at that point, mm-hmm. at this point in after the wilderness, I think that is just Grant is determined. Grant is mm-hmm. is somewhat stubborn. Mm-hmm. Grant is, you know, he's going to follow through with his strategy. And yeah. his strategy is to keep the pressure on. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that Grant does understand is when the wilderness begins, he has 100,000 soldiers under his command. That's almost twice as, met, as much as General Lee has. So he understands that if he just keeps the pressure on, right. eventually he's going to break this enemy mm-hmm. army out. Um, what's going to happen, though, is over the next couple months... There are a series of 
you, you really can call them setbacks. Um, mm -hmm. Because if you just, I'll, I'll kind of go through a list of some of the battles that are going to take place. Uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse, 8, 8 to 21 May. Uh, a cavalry battle during that time, Yellow Tavern. Um, Cold Harbor, 31 May to, to June 12th. Um, that's the one that Grant in his memoirs later said he regrets. Um, they're eventually going to cross the James River. Uh, so these are defeats for the Union? They're really he, draws. So they're in some cases draws. In some cases, you could argue they're tactical defeats, um, strategic victories in some sense, but they're in cases hollow victories. Um, but in um, every instance, he just bypasses, moves on? He continues to have to kind of move on um, and continue his move south. But what's going to end up happening is because of where these battles are fought, he can't directly go to Richmond. So he uh, changes direction and comes south of Richmond and then wants to move up through Petersburg. Mm -hmm. um, and so he kind of has to, he, his direct line is cut off because Lee's army is constantly basically beating him to where he wants right. to go. Uh, so how does that affect his line of communication then? His line of communication stays relatively open because he has access to the coast. Ah. Um, but what's going to basically be shot is is his army's morale. Mm. Um, because by June, they've been fighting nonstop for two or three days, or two or three months. And, and while they communication is open, uh, the army off, often outmarches its food supply. Mm -hmm. um, and they're hungry. They've suffered very heavy casualties in this time. Uh, in for example, at um, the famous Mule Shoe in Spotsylvania, um, it, it's just a, a two-day attack against a, a fortified salient um, that, that leads to heavy casualties on both sides, including um, uh, the, a corps commander in General Sedgwick. Um, Cold Harbor, the reason Grant says he later regrets it is he orders attacks against a well-fortified Confederate position that leads to thousands of casualties in a matter of an hour. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very, very brutal. This is where, you know, he's going to earn the nickname the Butcher. Mm -hmm. His armies are beginning, you know, desertion levels are going up. Oh, wow. And, and it's, it's looking almost kind of down and, and downtrodden because he's, he, yes, he's continued the advance, but at what cost. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, he's lost at this point, if you just look at the, the the official records of casualties, and I have it written down here, so I don't get it quite wrong here, but um, there are 54,000, almost 55,000 casualties in Grant's forces. Uh, that's including, wow. of course, that's killed, wounded, and missing. Yeah. Um, but we're talking about almost, almost 8,000 killed. And another almost 40,000 that are going to be wounded. Now, a lot of them are going to return to duty. Mm -hmm. But out of his 120,000 or so soldiers, 56,000 casualties, 55,000 casualties is a, a heavy, That's heavy brutal. toll. Yeah. And um, you compare that to the Confederate casualties of about 32,000. Now, the big difference is Grant does have the ability to replenish that where mm -hmm. Lee's army does not, mm. um, and if you look at compare, if you look at percentages, Lee actually suffers a heavier percentage of casualties. But, wow. but to the soldiers in the field, that doesn't really that doesn't matter as much, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, by the time General Grant gets to Petersburg, uh, he's hoping for one last sort of sort of victory. And I mentioned in the last session, uh, General William Baldy Smith. Uh, he was the engineer who opened the cracker line at Chattanooga. Now he's a corps commander, um, and he is part of General Benjamin Butler's Army, the James, which is kind of down by Fort Monroe. And his corps was detached from the Army of the James to assist Grant's forces as they advanced south. And he was kind of, he's ordered to attack Petersburg. Uh, and when he attacks Petersburg, the only defenders there are a handful of Confederate soldiers. And he really has, if, if he would have continued his attack in, there's a chance he could have actually opened Petersburg before the Army of the Potomac arrived. But he was, he was very afraid that Lee's army was like right there. Oh, yeah. And it, it wasn't, but he thought it yeah. was right there. So he kind of hesitates. He kind of goes into defensive mode. General Grant's not too happy about that when he arrives. He's going to launch an attack. But again, by that time, by the time that Grant gets to Petersburg, his soldiers are, are pretty fought out. Mm -hmm. So he decides to lay siege, which um, in a lot of ways actually revitalizes the army. So they're laying siege to Petersburg. And then we have 
Uh, Battle of the Crater, something I always found fascinating. What 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 was that at Petersburg? And and describe what happened there. That is so. That's during the the, the siege, uh, and it's in um, which lasts. The siege from Petersburg is going to last from June of eighteen sixty four, and it it will be eventually. Uh, they'll they'll break through and, and end the siege in, in March of eighteen sixty five. So it's, wow, it's it's a long time. A long time. Um, and yeah, the Battle of the Crater is an interesting one. It was a, a gamble. Um, basically, there was some a, a, a regiment of soldiers that were comprised of a lot of former miners, mm-hmm. um, and they came up with a plan. They said that we could tunnel under the Confederates, uh, put a lot of dynamite, a, a lot of dynamite mm-hmm. under it, blow it up. It would blow up a defensive fort that was directly above it, allowing oh, us wow. to break through the line and mm-hmm. potentially get in. Um, and so it was a gamble, uh, and Grant, though, decides to give it a shot. He had tried something similar at Vicksburg um, oh. at a much smaller scale, mm-hmm. um, but he he looks to General Burnside's Ninth Corps. And I kind of remember I kind of mentioned earlier that there's this command and confusion issue, um, but he he confers with General Meade, and they decide that they'll give this to General Burnside. General Burnside has um, a couple divisions in his corps. One of them is a U.S. Colored Troops Division. That's under the command of Brigadier General Edward uh, Ferrero. That's the division that he says is going to do this. We're, oh. going, we're going to blow up the crater, mm-hmm. or blow up the, the mine, right. basically, and then you're this this black division all black soldier division is going to lead the attack and they go through this ex- extensive training period of hmm. of how are they going to do this and they come up with this way of they're going to split up they're going to go to each side of the now huge hole in the okay. ground they're not going to hmm. go in it they're going to go around it um they have kind of ladders that they're going to use hmm. to to scale di- different things they come up with this very very well planned out very elaborate uh attempt. Um, and we don't unfortunately get to know how it played out because on the eve of the attack, General Meade is very concerned that this could turn out very poorly if these black soldiers lead this attack. One, what if it fails? And then the U.S. colored troops are, are again, only reinforces the negative stereotypes that existed. Two, what if they're captured and we have another Fort Pillow? Mm -hmm. Or three, this is more cynical, maybe, and, and whether or not Meade actually thought this is what if they succeed and they break through where uh-huh. the others didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but they confer with he confers with General Grant again. Meade can't technically order Burnside to uh, wow. not do this, um, but he confers with General Grant and Grant most likely out of fear of if it fails, what's that going to mean for the the overall mm-hmm. view of of the U.S. colored troops? Um, he agrees, and at the last minute, a white division under the command of Brigadier General James uh, Ledley, who some reports indicated that he was drunk during the attack, that he that he did not think there was any chance of success for this, so mm-hmm. he just sort of took to the bottle. Um, but in any event, the first part of it goes really well. The, the, the mine shaft mm-hmm. ex- does its job. It blows yeah. up, and everything above it is decimated. It leaves this enormous wow. crater in the ground. Uh, that part worked. Um, and the Confederates there had no idea. They're caught off guard. Yeah. There's a there's a moment of just pure confusion on their part, um, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And then the the infantry assault begins. Now mm-hmm. the troops that have been put into that position the night before, day before, they had not been training for it. They didn't really know what to do. And rather than going around, mm-hmm. they run into the crater. Oh, and wow. they try to go through the breach line, hmm. which is effectively this huge hole in the ground, and, of course, they get stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And the Confederates, after a few moments of confusion, regroup and then begin basically fish-in-a-barrel type thing. Oh. And the colored hmm. troops are eventually told to go in hmm. and follow up the attack, but by this point it had devolved into just right. chaos because the initial plan... Had, had already completely fallen apart. So by the end of the battle, um, it's really, a, a, you could call it a defeat. Um, it, it's not really a defeat because, in a sense, it just reestablished the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, but it certainly wasn't a success. Um, and unfortunately, the gamble didn't pay off, and we'll never know what had happened yeah. had it not been for the the last-minute change. Right. Oh, um, that's fascinating. In, in, interesting. It's a... <clears throat> 
a uh, <clears throat> me, an, an imaginative um, concept, but like you're saying, it's just not followed through properly. Right. So, um, all right. So we've got <clears throat> um, Grant's forces, or you know, the Army of the Potomac. Is it? What are they calling that now? The it's still the Army of the Potomac, yeah. um, and there's also, like I said, Burnside's Corps, and then the Army of the James is is mm-hmm. in Virginia as well under uh, General Benjamin Butler. Um, so they're laying siege to Petersburg, basically. But now, what's happening out west? Now uh, we've got General Sherman is now in command. So what's his plan, and what actions is he taking? So at the same time that uh, in early May that Grant launches his overland campaign, uh, General Sherman breaks out from from uh, Chattanooga. And General Sherman, he has, he's in, he's commanding the military division of the Mississippi, which, so he has uh, basically three armies under him, as well as a handful of other mm-hmm. corps here and there. But uh, the three armies under him are, are the Army of the Cumberland, uh, under command since uh, Chattanooga of Major General George uh, Thomas. He has the Army of the Tennessee, under command of General Major General James B. McPherson. And then he has the Army of Ohio under the command of Major General John uh, Schofield. Um, and Sherman's approach is to move on to Atlanta in this mm-hmm. in this case. Um, and the 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 issue that was holding the armies back before this was how do you supply? Mm. How do you keep this? Because the farther you get from Chattanooga, the deeper you get into the south, right. the farther away you are from your supply lines. How do you keep the army fed? And Sherman decides he's going to kind of take his own gamble and live off the land. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to spread his armies into three separate columns, um, and he's going to have he's going to mm-hmm. give orders that they're going to send out foragers every day. Um, and his view is it's time to punish the South. That mm-hmm. they, they are the reason for this war. I want to end this war, and, you know, it's time to you know, you live off the land. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of myths and a lot of misperceptions uh, of what Sherman actually does. There's all these, you know, the gone with the wind, oh, he burns farms. That really right. didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you, typically fires that were set were either set by retreating Confederates or mm-hmm. the people who owned the farms themselves who did right. it to prevent them from falling into mm-hmm. U.S. hands. Um, so so the kind of the the atrocities that are often attributed to Sherman just are myths, mm-hmm. uh, didn't happen. Um, but he does live off the land. He uh, Sometimes he will actually pay people uh, some of the, oh. the four animals. So they weren't just taking the animals. They and, often did, but, but yeah. and sometimes the pay was useless in some cases. Okay. But but he was, um, it, it, but yeah, there was a, you know, you're going to find your own animals. You're going to find food. You're going to find forage. You're going to go through, um, if there's a farmhouse and they have stocks of grain, mm-hmm. we're going to take what we need. Um, and that's how he's going to feed his, his armies and he's going to move them through the deep south, through Georgia, towards Atlanta. Um, and he's going to do it in a way where he's trying to outmaneuver the other armies. I mentioned last time we talked about General Bragg being in charge um, in the, of the Confederate forces there. He's been replaced now by General Joseph Johnston. Um, and so for a lot of this campaign, it's Sherman and Johnston. Um, Johnston will eventually be replaced as well, but... Um, He's just trying to outmaneuver. Uh, there are a handful of skirmishes. There's a handful of small battles, but Sherman is really just trying to do as much damage as he can without a large pitched battle. He, he's right. really taking to heart the kind of the old, um, you know, art of war adage of you know, maneuver is is how you win. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also thinks that if he can demoralize the Confederate populace by doing this um, and keep Johnston confused as to where he's actually moving, where he's going. If he's sending his three armies in different directions, they know where they're going, Mm -hmm. but perhaps General Johnston doesn't. And Mm -hmm. are they moving? And he split his forces. So, so he's constantly keeping him guessing. He's constantly keeping him moving and he's trying to demoralize not only the civilian populace there, but also the enemy army um, as he moves towards, uh, towards Atlanta. And like I said, there's a, there's a handful of battles there. Um, not many pitched battles, with the exception of of one, which I think we'll we'll talk about. Yeah, so let's yeah let's talk about that one, uh, uh, Kennesaw Mountain. So um, describe what happened there. Yeah, so that's that's June twenty seventh, eighteen sixty four, um, and this is the one moment where Sherman sort of 
moves away from his personal strategy. Uh, he saw an opportunity. Um, Johnston's army was effectively somewhat consolidated at this position. It's, of course, a, as the name kind of indicates, right. it's a, a And, and before position. we get into, so um, where is Kennesaw Mountain when you consider Chattanooga and then Atlanta? So is that, is it closer to Atlanta or closer to Chattanooga? It, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's in Georgia. It's in Georgia, okay. yeah. And um, it's one of those just kind of miss, it's just sort of a, a mistake battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sherman eventually, or Sherman realizes it. Um, but he attacks, uh, he launches a series of frontal assaults against a well-fortified defender. Um, he kind of saw it as an opportunity. He, he thought, okay, if they're consolidated here, again, I out I outnumber them mm-hmm. by a large margin. If I can get my all three of my armies here and launch coordinated attack, we can maybe just defeat Johnston. Um, mm. it, it doesn't work out. It's Again, it's it's a series of frontal assaults, um, more, mostly repulsed, a few cases of, you know, a breakthrough here or there, but mostly repulsed. Well, and how long was this battle? It was just, uh, it was just a, a day. It was a, it was a, wow. a day fight, a mm. couple days. I mean, the, the campaign, you look at, there's, there's again, there's fighting around it, but the pitched mm-hmm. battle, the mm-hmm. main element of it was um, June 27th. And... Afterwards, uh, the Confederates suffer about equal numbers of casualties. Um, but afterwards, Sherman reverts back to his um, to his strategy of maneuver. He says, "I'm not doing that again. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, this this is too costly. I don't want I don't want to risk yeah. losing so many. So because he still outnumbers them, and he understands that. But he doesn't want to risk another heavy casualty mm-hmm. battle or or series of battles." Right where then he loses his advantage. So he wants to press the advantage, so he goes back into, after Kennesaw Mountain, his his initial sort of mindset. So does the Union even take Kennesaw Mountain, or do they just bypass it? They kind of just go around it. They sort right. of just, he, he reverts back into his maneuver. He, he splits up, and they start moving around again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no there's no real necessity to capture it if you're not, if it's mm-hmm. not worth fighting for. Okay. And so the Johnston's forces who were defending Kennesaw Mountain, uh, do any of them stay there or do they all withdraw also? They're going to, they're going to basically go back into their, their game of chase. They're going to, mm. he's going to pull his, pull them off. And they're going to have to kind of keep trying to match Sherman right. move for move. Cause he's the only thing that stands between Sherman and Atlanta. Effectively. Yeah. Aside from some militia units here or there okay. and some other small, small right. contingents but as as, mm-hmm. as far as field armies he's basically the the main army that's in the way yeah right and then so um they bypass Kennesaw Mountain and start heading south all right and then in our next episode I think we're, we're going to go into more details about what takes place through the battles of Atlanta and uh, Sherman's infamous march to the sea and through the Carolinas um but before we wrap this up there's something that's interesting that's also happening we've got um Petersburg is under siege. So uh, General Lee takes some other action. He uh, um, he sends some forces up and uh, attacks again in Maryland. Uh, two different battles that, uh, you know, I'd just like to hear you talk about with uh, the Battle of Monocacy mm-hmm. and the Battle of Fort Stevens. Monocacy is in Maryland. Stevens is in D.C. Yeah. So uh, just talk about what happened in those and why did Lee do it? Why was it important to take place? So, yeah, so Lee is going to dispatch uh, General Jubal Early, and he is going, uh, for the sake of who, who was Jubal Early, mm-hmm. he was one of his uh, corps commanders. Jubal Early is also uh, the person arguably most responsible for creating the, the lost cause myth after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going to, dis- to, to dispatch him to move uh, down the Shenandoah Valley, which means north, <laughs> right. um, mm-hmm. and, and up into uh, to, to try to basically create havoc, mm-hmm. um, also to get some some food and things from the Shenandoah for okay. his own army, but 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 to effectively create havoc for uh, the it, it, the initial phase is actually to defend against uh, Grant attempted an attack in the Shenandoah as well. So mm-hmm. Early's armies are there to defend against that attack, oh. and that's the um, that's the kind of the the first part of it's it's in Lynchburg, Virginia, West. West Virginia, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and there's a, there's a few battles there: Newmarket, Piedmont. Um, after those battles is when Early moves up. Early thinks if I can go up into into Maryland, cross, once again cross Potomac River, yeah. get into Maryland, and then move towards D.C. Grant has pulled all the D.C. defenders 
to to mm-hmm. reinforce his army. So he's so the thought is that DC is is basically undefended, mm-hmm. and if he could move on it and attack it, not really believing he could capture the city, not right. really believing that he could actually end the war that way, mm-hmm. but it might force Grant to lift the siege and and send some soldiers back up. Uh, so that's what really is going on at Monocacy and at Fort Stevens. Um, so Early's early soldiers, Early's troops, they cross the river, um, and they move towards Frederick, Maryland. Uh, Frederick, Maryland is another one of these places where it's just like, wow, everything happens there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just outside there that on the eve of, of the end battles at Antietam that um, that the lost order is found. It's just outside mm-hmm. Frederick. Um, Ante- Frederick is going to become a, a effectively a, a living hospital for soldiers from mm-hmm. for wounded soldiers from Antietam. And then later, here's this Battle of Monocacy. Uh, Meade's army was was at Frederick's at Frederick right before Gettysburg. That's where his base of operations was mm-hmm. on the eve of Gettysburg. So a lot happens at Frederick, including kind of culminates in this Battle um, of Monocacy, which is fought um, in July 1864, July 9th. And General Major General Lew Wallace is the kind of defender. Now, G- General Wallace, um, he's more famous for his post-war work. He, he wrote Ben-Hur. Right. Um, he had been with Grant uh, early in the war out in um, during the Battles of Shiloh, uh, or the Battle of Shiloh. Um, he was there, and he's somewhat maybe unfairly blamed for some problems there. Um, but after Shiloh, he's kind of dismissed to, to, yeah, you're going to command... Some stuff in D.C., but you're not really going to be a real, you know, you're going to have command, but you're not right. going to be a combatant commander. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's really all that's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he dispatches with uh, only about 4,000, um, or actually only about 2,000 men to go to Frederick to to face off what is a larger force. Mm-hmm. Um, he's outnumbered about two to one, um, Jubal Early. And there's a, he, he's basically fighting a delaying action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he realizes that he's, of course, going to, you know, they're wiring Grant. Right. There's an army, and there's an army, ninety minutes, you know, yeah. outside of DC. Um, in terms of not walking, driving, right? You know, yeah, an yeah, hour and a half right. driving. Yeah, maybe a couple of days, maybe, march, but yeah. yeah, they're 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 there. You need mm-hmm. to send send troops. Um, Grant is at first sort of dismissive of this. Grant's sort of he's not quite sure what's really going on. He mm-hmm. wants to be sure that this is real and it's not some kind of ploy. Right. Um, eventually, he will dispatch some soldiers there. Um, but Wallace basically fights a delaying act action uh, outside Monocacy and or, or outside Frederick mm-hmm. near the Monocacy Creek, Monocacy River, um, and manages to delay early soldiers by about two days. Um, Wallace is eventually going to have to retreat from the field. Wallace is eventually going to have to bring his soldiers back to D.C. They're, they're, they're just they're outnumbered. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not in a very good position. But he holds them off long enough that that one or two days delay is enough for those soldiers, those few thousand soldiers that Grant dispatched from hmm. Petersburg to arrive in D.C., reman the forts. So the Battle of Fort Stevens is sort of that aspect of it. The forts are around D.C. are now reinforced. I think there's, what was it, 44, 47 forts in total that circled the D.C., the city of D.C. at the time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and Early's, the closest early soldiers get is Fort Stevens. There's a, there's a, sort of a minor battle there. And that's on the northern edge, I think, of uh, D.C.? Sort of, yeah, kind of the northwestern mm-hmm. right. yeah, edge of D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and if President Lincoln comes out to, to see what's happening. Uh, yeah, he, now he's staying at what he called his summer White House. Right. Um, it's, what, about 15 miles north of actual uh, the White House? I don't even think it's DC. that far. Yeah, it's because uh, he used to travel uh, by carriage each day. So... Um, it's yeah. and it's where where what we call today the old soldiers home is right it's um, near it's it's pretty near um like in north northeast dc today near mm-hmm. the um like the catholic university thing yeah. so it's only, it's it's in that area um so he he was very close to fort stevens so he went up there uh, when the battle was taking place he was and he actually got a little too close for comfort for a lot of people he goes up onto the onto the walls there onto the parapet and uh and he's they kind of had to tell him <laughs> uh, get 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 down! Uh, you know we don't yeah. need you. This, mm-hmm. this is about the last thing we need is a right. six foot four man mm-hmm. in a in a suit and top hat. Mm-hmm. You know, getting getting uh, getting shot here and, and needlessly. <laughs> um, 
so he's actually the commander in chief, actually at a battle, observing the battle as it's taking actually place. Actually observing it, yeah. And uh, eventually, like I said, they 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 convince him to mm-hmm. to get down and, and get out of the way, um, and he kind of and he he listens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and but yeah, it's 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 effectively a early's forces by this point. Um, maybe three days earlier, his mm-hmm. four thousand soldiers could have done some damage, but the fact that uh, Lew Wallace's troops had delayed them long yeah. enough, um, Grant had put just enough in. The forts are re- there are remanned, and uh, if, if you were to look at them at the time, there's no way a four thousand yeah. conti- division is going to capture these forts. So they're they're repulsed, and they were and they move back into the Shenandoah. Okay, so they 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 withdraw back south. They do, and they, they withdraw back through. Basically, they go back the way they came. Mm-hmm. Um, they go back up through Maryland over towards Frederick, get back on their side of the the other mm-hmm. side of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and cross back over. Um, and then, in partly in response, but that's when shortly after is when uh, um, General Grant gives General Philip Sheridan permission to launch his Valley Campaign, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm sure will be discussed in another. Oh um, yeah, so the so the Valley Campaign that that um, the new the Army of the Shenandoah under commander uh, command of General Sheridan is a series of battles that he launches mm-hmm. against Early's forces in the Shenandoah, oh, okay. um, and he so he's he leaves from Petersburg, uh, he goes into mm-hmm. the Shenandoah Valley, and between um, July and the end of the year, uh, really July and September October. Um, there's there's a series of battles there between Sheridan's army as well as his cavalry forces, and mm. they neutralize early. Um, and then now the what would have been known as the breadbasket of the Confederacy is now oh. effectively in in U.S. Army control. Oh, okay. Oh, um, wow. And by that, and that's point, significant too. It is, and and Sheridan then is able to with his army after the, his campaign rejoin Grant mm-hmm. in uh, in. In Petersburg, and and the Army of the Shenandoah was basically the the uh, uh, an ad hoc army created by uh, Grant. It had been there were some early forces there that were in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant sent Sheridan there take over this army plus some other soldiers and and um, all right. So, all right. Well, great. Well, thanks so much. Um, this has been. Um, um, very interesting. Very in- in- enlightening. Seeing the strategy and hearing how it's playing out. Um, and uh, is there anything else uh, that comes to mind that that you wanted to add? Or no, I I think uh, that's about it. I just uh, just kind of wrap it up. I know you're going to talk more about the end of the war in another session, but yeah. just sort of to reiterate that yeah, the 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 overland campaign did a lot of damage to to the Army of the Potomac, um, but the Petersburg campaign is what really lets it it gets revitalized. Okay. Um, sieges usually have the opposite effect. Trench warfare usually has the mm-hmm. opposite effect. But for an army that had been fighting nonstop for three months, mm-hmm. that Relative rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, is yeah, I was going to say it was probably welcomed by the soldiers. Um, so now, um, last bit is our Hua trivia. So, what uh, what piece of Hua trivia do you have for this time period? Yeah, again, I don't know if it's, I don't know how Hua it is, but uh, <laughs> um, I think one of the interesting things about this period is the today the na- this national symbol of Arlington National Cemetery mm-hmm. uh, that we tend to think of changing the guard. Um, this this symbol of of sacrifice and heroism um during the wilderness campaign effectively is when it becomes in some ways a cemetery um uh, it had been under union control since the very first moments of the war uh that was robert e lee's estate arlington house the arlington estate was owned by him and his his wife um and And it's directly across the river directly across the river dc overseas dc Mm -hmm. and it's it's a in theory, it could be an imposing position sure. if you were, but so the the U.S. Army wastes no time in capturing that, mm-hmm. um, and basically making sure that throughout the course of the war, it would not fall back into better uh, hand. And they also do some there's some sneaky uh, finagling with taxes, and oh. they basically f- said that um, if Mrs. Lee didn't return to Washington in person to pay the ninety three dollar uh, state tax, uh, <laughs> that it fell to government control. Mm-hmm. Of course, she wasn't going to do that, right. so that that's how they kind of maintain control of it. But um, Quartermaster General Montgomery Miggs, during the Wilderness Campaign, because casualties are so high and they're taking people from the from the front back into D.C. and there's these D.C. hospitals, D.C. D.C. cemeteries, and and quite frankly, the the cemeteries are getting full. 
um, and the hospitals are getting full. And people who are dying either, either of disease or from their wounds in these D.C. hospitals need a place to be buried. And parts of the Arlington estate had been used to bury freedmen for a while, um, but Miggs says, let's turn this into a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was personally, he had a personal vendetta against Lee and the Confederacy. His son uh, was killed during the Valley Campaign. Mm-hmm. So throughout 1864, uh, he basically converts, oh. and, and he wants the bodies buried yeah. Right next to the house. He wants the bodies oh, yeah. buried in the, in Mrs. Lee's Rose Garden mm-hmm. so that they would never return. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the first KIAs who were buried, uh, who had died in, in D.C. hospitals but were mm. wounded in action, later later died in act, died of their wounds, uh, the first ones of them who were buried in uh, Arlington Cemetery were some of those substitute soldiers that I had ref- talked about last time, oh, uh, wow. that they had... You know, they were basically bought out by someone who was drafted, yeah. and they and so some of the first ones killed were actually the uh, the substitute soldiers that okay. were in the wilderness. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it again, Matt. Um, um, great job, great uh, great information. It's really uh, very fascinating, and um, um, so thank you for the discussion today. Yeah, thanks and for all having your insights. Yeah. yeah, and if anyone wants to learn more about the Civil War and more about Army history in general, then I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And as I mentioned earlier, our books and pamphlet series are all available at this website. And um, the two that we talked about earlier, the U.S. Army campaigns in the Civil War, uh, it's great read. They're short reads, but um, really some great details in there about the Civil War, free PDF downloads, and our Department of the Army uh, historical summaries. Uh, the Daysums are available as well. And uh, Matt uh, uh, takes part in writing those each year. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And join us every week on this podcast for more in-depth discussions as we cover topics from all eras of U.S. Army history. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.